also anxiety, fear, panic. They are words for largely the same mechanism in the brain. Uh, the difference between anxiety and panic is simply the speed and the intensity with which it's experienced. But they're all triggered by a region of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is pre-conscious, so it doesn't understand a word of English or any other language. It doesn't understand reasoning. So trying to reason with fear is one of the great wastes of time. Trying to use logic with fear. Fear and uh, panic, anxiety, are there for very good reasons. They're natural responses. There are hopefully not too many times in life, but in life there are situations that are really threatening. Fear, panic, anxiety are survival reactions, and they basically are there to keep us alive. When we're under threat, uh, the amygdala is activated, and that triggers the release of both adrenaline, which attunes your awareness keeps you focused, keeps your senses heightened, which is why uh, in a threatening situation, seem, time seems to slow down because actually the brain is going into hyperdrive. It's taking in far more uh, information than it normally does. changes the perception of time. It also releases cortisol, which has the effect of changing the physiology of the body uh, cortisol starts the heart racing so that you can pump blood to the arms and legs, repair you to fight or, or flee. It, uh, it also stops the production of white blood cells and starts the production of red blood cells because it suspects you might be injured. It causes sweating, the hairs in the back of the neck, which is a, a genetic sort of trait that remains from much earlier incarnations of our species. Uh, it does a lot of things that basically get us ready to fight and flight or freeze if we must to survive. Now, in a normal situation where we are threatened, after the threat went away, suppose a car jumps the curb and it comes towards us and then it steers out of the way. The moment we see that the, the threat has disappeared, the brain would release other, uh, basically, neurotransmitters and uh, hormones that would tell the body, okay, relax, we're safe. However, in given uh, capabilities of the human mind, which we'll discuss in a moment, we can actually create a lot of traumatic situations that are not truly threatening, even though we perceive them as threatening. When there is no real threat, 
and uh, anxiety or panic has been created by uh, simply perceived threats or stressors. We can keep the stress response going because we haven't shut it off and B, because of our thoughts which can trigger and keep the stress response going. It breaks down like this. In life there are traumas which are real threats, real dangerous situations which we encounter and which having a reaction makes sense. For example, somebody who is in a war situation, somebody who's been violently attacked, raped, somebody who's been uh, in a, an accident, uh, somebody, a child who's been suddenly separated from a caretaker. All of these are traumas. They are very real, threatening situations that could affect the survival of the person going through them. And in those situations, a reaction, panic, anxiety, any kind of state to gear up for survival would be well understood. A second term to become familiar with is a stressor. A stressor in and of itself is not threatening. For example, mounting bills, having a new child, suddenly being in college. Uh, those are external stressors. In and of themselves, being in college or having a newborn or taking care of an elderly parent is not life-threatening, but it is a stressor. An emotional, internal stressor are feelings of isolation, uniqueness, victimization, any ongoing thought that adds an ongoing sense of drama and threat to the mind. If you put enough stressors together, they can create, guess what, a traumatic situation, a overwhelming condition. For example, a single parent with mounting financial responsibilities, feelings of isolation and being cut off, these are in and of themselves, a bunch of stressors that taken one by one might not be overwhelming, but put all together could very easily create a traumatic result. Now the third term to bear in mind is a trigger. A trigger is in no way threatening at all. It's not even a stressor. It's simply something that reminds us of our stresses or our traumas and creates the reaction. For example, a soldier comes back from a war. They suddenly hear a car backfire. The car backfiring is not a threat under any circumstances. But because it's sudden and because it's loud, the soldier, the ex-soldier, might be expected to suddenly panic start to sweat, might even die for cover, depending upon how great the post-traumatic stress that they brought back from their experiences are. 
Another example, a child who grows up in a family where a caretaker suddenly disappears. Later on in adult life, that child, when a partner, even a short-term partner, rejects, abandons, breaks up with them, they might have a traumatic response. The new breakup is a trigger. It's not threatening. They're now an adult. Nothing will happen to them physically, but it brings up an acute reaction circa the child that's been abandoned so many years earlier. So, to summarize again, traumas, dangerous, life-threatening, almost invariably create uh, after-effects, always create reactions. And a reaction makes sense in a traumatic situation. Stressors in alone probably won't be traumatic. In clusters, internal and external clusters of, of stressors can create a situation where there's a panic attack or an anxiety attack or outright fear response. Finally, a trigger is simply something that reminds you. So, for example, if a student goes to college for the first time and they bring expectations of perfection and achievement because they've been successful in their high school years, but they're cut off from their families and their support group, their high school friends, and alone in college they fail the first test that they take. This is a scenario where many 18-year-olds actually kill themselves. There was a bridge up in upstate New York in um, Ithaca where kids would regularly jump and they were almost invariably freshmen simply from this cluster of stressors. Uh, the trigger in that might simply be the failed test that reminds them that they're powerless, that they don't have connections or uh, a trigger might be something that's completely, completely uh, benign. Not being invited to a party, not having a phone call return. Anything that reminds them of the repressed or unmet or building stress. So to give you a couple of examples that may be familiar of traumas, we talked about wars, accidents, uh, uh, violent encounters. And the thing about traumas is that they're most often triggered by literally physical sensations. A rape victim might, in a consensual encounter years later, be triggered simply by being in the same position or by a glance or a look on their partner's face. Any sensory perception can trigger a response. When it comes to stresses, stresses can be triggered in a whole host of different ways to, to suddenly be uh, uh, a situation that cannot, that's overwhelming and creates an anxiety attack or a panic attack give you a couple of examples I put together. Um, 
Besides the stressful jobs where we have too many responsibility, not enough power to make decisions, financial pressures, living with a sudden diagnosis of a, of a disease, caring for dependents, relationship issues, being isolated. Those are the external stressors. They're demands that are placed upon an individual. Now, the internal stressors which work together in tandem with them are repressed emotional energy. When we don't allow ourselves to feel the frustrations of life, when we try to push down or run away or divert our attention from our day-to-day feelings of uh, being uh, rejected, being frustrated, anger, resentment, uh, anything that we don't allow ourselves to physically feel and experience, anything that we repress, creates a building underlying stress. Perfectionism an expectation that we should always do well. Reputation concerns, trying to maintain a good appearance to other people, concern how other people view us. These are things that are outside of our control and create tension. Victimization perceptions, i.e. feeling always unique and picked on by the universe, feeling that each experience is something about ourselves. A real huge stressor that creates anxiety and creates uh, uh, panic (coughs) is concealing. A lot of the work I've done with people over the years uh, who come to Dharma Punks with panic, anxiety attacks, it quite often turns out that there's some underlying experience or desire that's been withheld, that's not being spoken about, and when they see this articulated or enacted by somebody else, there's a traumatic reaction. I'll give you an example, one of many. We, all, we live in a very homophobic country, and a a lot of people who are brought up in regions that are specifically homophobic, uh, if they have same-sex desires, they repress them and don't report them to their friends. And then what happens is they might suddenly encounter people who are comfortable in their sexuality. And the result, if it's not outright violence or aggression, is very often uh, panic, agitation, fear. Similar with uh, people who uh, grow up in macho environments where decisiveness and, and not displaying weakness are expected. This expectation can create a, a, a mental landscape where feelings of not being sure about oneself, feelings of being insecure, feelings of being uh, vulnerable, feelings of being sad are repressed and not reported. And then what happens is not being able to verbalize this creates a sense of shame, uniqueness, there's something wrong with me. That creates an ongoing narrative in the mind which in tandem with other stressors creates a mind that eventually 
implodes on itself. Any repressed ideation, desire, experience that we don't talk about creates a narrative that we can't report, and that concealment takes up an enormous amount of the mind's resources to conceal. Other stressors that some people don't realize, there's a lot of clinical studies that show that people who watch excessive amounts of news are especially susceptible. There was an amazing report that uh, people, the gravest danger of the bird flu is the stress that it creates in people. None of you will ever get the bird flu. But statistically, the stress that people have from knowing about the bird flu is actually significant. In the 1950s, during the Cold War, which was a stressor, if not an outright trauma, uh, a lot of television shows and popular uh, magazines started having started occurring about uh, alien invasions, and people would actually have meltdowns. In the uh, actually in the 30s, the first time it happened during the Great Depression, which was a stressor if ever there was one. Orson Welles did War of the Worlds, <laughs> and people there was a wave of suicides across the country. Um, so news can create this sense of this building stress that we're under attack. And certainly um, <coughs> another great stress is loss of coping tools. Coping tools are diversions or strategies that we use to mitigate feelings of disappointment and stress to put off feeling them. For example, alcohol, drugs, sex, food, any of these, ring a bell, uh, TV, uh, internet is probably the world's biggest uh, coping tool right now. Whenever we feel lonely, isolated, there is Facebook to give us the illusion of connection and uh, and having people in our lives. So, um, when we lose one of these, it creates a stressful situation. Now, you might say, how do we lose the television? How do we lose uh, drugs or alcohol? They seem to be readily available. But actually, each of these uh, coping tools are dependent upon dopamine. And the thing about dopamine is we habituate to it quickly. So we need more and more alcohol, more and more drugs, more and more sex, more and more gambling, more and more shopping to get less and less diversion or stress release. Eventually, no matter how much we turn towards coping tools, eventually they fail. And we're left entirely without ways to cope with the stresses that have built up in life. And then any trigger can set us off. So, now for some of the uh, Buddhist strategies for dealing with this mess. As I said earlier, 
the human mind, because of the narratives of isolation, victimization, uh, the concerns about how we appeal to others, all of the attachment stories that the Buddha listed in uh, the uh, Upadana series, uh, can create ongoing internal stresses that can magnify something that was survivable on its own and turn it into an outright trauma. Uh, somebody who's got mounting bills, who compa- compounds that with feelings of not being good enough, low self-esteem, and uniqueness can turn uh, somebody uh, presenting them with an unforeseen expense. That can suddenly trigger a meltdown. So let's talk about strategies for panic first. A panic attack is a very, very sudden and very, very intense experience of anxiety and fear. What happens is uh, the amygdala is triggered. Suddenly the entire body has this wave of energy. The hyperventilation causes senses of dizziness. There's sweating and a sense of nausea because of the tightening of the throat muscles. Overall, the feeling is a flush of energy moving up the body and literally rushing to the head. They call it a rush of blood to the head. You might have heard that phrase. It's basically a survival reflex, but it very often is triggered by completely harmless scenarios in life. We, for example, feeling late, rushed, suddenly the subway comes to a halt in a river, they announce that it won't be moving for a while, and all of the attendant stresses build up and create a panic attack. So in a real panic attack, if you've ever had one, you'll know it, trust me. The most important thing to do, first of all, is to bring the awareness as low in the body as you possibly can. One of the tendencies people have to do that doesn't work is they try to reason with a panic attack. It will not work. It's a pre-conscious part of the brain. It doesn't understand a word you're saying. It's like trying to tell a cat in language not to you know, uh, be frightened or whatever. It is a region of the brain that goes back way before the human experience. Fortunately, the amygdala can be trained to, or in a sense instructed, to stop releasing cortisol and adrenaline so that we can, in fact, relax. You can actually train or trick it into releasing serotonin. How do you do that? Bring the awareness down into the body, relax anything that feels tight, especially if you feel the stomach tight, or B, if the panic is extremely strong, press the legs into the ground or press the arms onto the legs like I'm doing. I'm like I'm attractively modeling for you right now. So uh, 
pressing the muscles, really depressing, bringing awareness to something low in the body. This actually interrupts that flow of energy that's moving up. It also basically brings your awareness away from the thought triggers, which are thoughts like, oh shit, I'm going to die, or oh fuck, I'm losing my shit, or oh shit, I'm fucked, or whatever. (laughs) So you get the idea. Uh, So that... The most important technique after doing that is taking control of the breath. Deep, full breaths in the uh, chest trip the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, and that actually literally is hardwired to the parasympathetic nervous system which triggers the release of cortisol. So simply by moving your chest deeply with an in-breath and then extending the out-breaths long, that tells the mind or basically the, the limbic system, I'm safe. Why? Because nobody would be fucking breathing that way if they were being attacked by a fucking bear. You're not going to be like... <gasps> <laughs> so the literally the amygdala sees this and is like oh shit I know that I feel like I should be panicking but the fucker is like <gasps> he's breathing like that so nothing's going on I, I have it on good authority um, the next is to um have a mantra I highly recommend. Some people use Om Mani Padmium. That's a largely a Tibetan and uh, other Buddhist practice with that. Uh, it has a meaning, but most people don't know what it is. It's just a phrase. And it, the meaning doesn't matter because, once again, the, the amygdala doesn't understand language anyway. The reason why we have a mantra is simply it pulls the mind away from the re-triggering thoughts, the feelings of being under attack, isolated, being criticized, being under the gun. So what you're doing is you're replacing the triggers with something that's benign. I really like the phrase that uh, my friend George introduced me to, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. A while back I was... I have I can be triggered by uh, heights, and so when I, if you ever see me on a ski lift, I never go skiing. I just sometimes to go hiking they put you on a ski lift, and um, I don't know why I felt the need to inform you that I don't ski. <laughs> and I wonder if he skis. <laughs> wait 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 before you go on. When you're on a ski lift, is that because you ski? <laughs> what the fuck is going on with me? Oh, what the fuck? All right, anyway, I, I'll be saying, I love you, keep going, I love you, keep going, I love you, keep going. And, you know, the other people are like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we got over one ski lift with a terrorist. <laughs> the bomb's about to go up. Uh, somebody, by the way... Uh, 
Yeah, turn up there. Thank you very, very much. So uh, another important thing is to accept and acknowledge people who uh, panic when speaking in front of people. The most useful thing to do is simply say when you get up, when I speak in front of people, I get nervous. Just saying that stops the concealment. I'll give you a story I told last night. Mirzi, you can tune that now. True one. Uh, a number of years ago, about five or six years ago, I was speaking at a very, very big meeting, probably about 100 people. And right before I spoke, I had the bright idea to go out to dinner before I spoke, which I'll never do again in my life. And uh, I had a salad, another stupid idea. It went right directly through me. And right before I spoke, I realized that I was not going to make it. The train had left the station. If you haven't figured out what I'm talking about yet, I'll make it very clear in a moment. So I whispered to the guy introducing me, I'm not going to make it. I have to uh, run to the bathroom. So I ran to the bathroom and basically shut out all of my innards. You're grateful that I told you that. And uh, then I looked around and naturally I ran into a bathroom where there was no toilet paper whatsoever. (laughs) So from a bathroom, (laughs) from a bathroom I had to scream out, I need toilet paper. <laughs> and the guy who was, the guy who was uh, uh, hosting said, what? I can't hear you. So I just keep screaming, I need toilet paper. So naturally, <laughs> after that point, any time for the next couple of years I would speak in front of anybody, it would be a trigger, and I would I would have literally the, all the symptoms of irritable bowel, you know, just literally, oh, shit, I'm going to shit. <laughs> and this is not something that you generally give yourself permission to acknowledge in front of people. So the concealment of, oh, shit, I'm going to shit, became very uh, difficult to bear until I finally acknowledged it, and it was very liberating. So if I can do that... If I can sit up in front of people and say, oh, I'm having my irritable bowel syndrome again, I think that you can acknowledge whatever panic or fear you're going through. I'm giving you permission. Uh, Finally, titrating is extremely useful. Titrating means to, if we're in a trigger that's very, very dominating, like you're you're trapped in an elevator or you're in a situation where you feel very uh, set off. It's very useful to titrate, visualize somebody with whom you feel very, very protected and safe and cared for next to you. If it's still overwhelming, literally we can visualize an entire environment. So if you're in a crowded area or if you're in a space where you don't have enough room to breathe, it's worthwhile literally visualizing an entire place where you know you feel comfortable, lying on a towel on a beach, in a hammock, in the mountains, uh, 
any place that you felt safe in your life, literally titrate, that creates a different visual set of sensations which diminish the power of the trigger. Now, in terms of reducing stressors, which are important, it's very important to, A, give oneself permission to drop the obligations that we pick up without adding any stories about being a failure or not living up to expectations. Having expectations, stories about what makes us worthwhile, stories about what makes us a good human being, is basically setting ourselves up for stress and eventual anxiety. Because if we feel we don't add up simply because we drop for a while an obligation that we've taken on or a responsibility, if we keep ourselves in such situations where we're juggling too many balls in the air, you don't just drop one ball, you drop all of them in an anxiety situation. So it's much better giving yourself permission to not have all those balls up in the air to run a metaphor into the ground. Or actually, that would be an analogy. But anyway, uh, it's very important to give oneself permission to simplify life when you feel stress. How do you know that stress is mounting? A, it's worthwhile having a daily practice where you simply do body scans. Note if you find your stomach is constantly tight or if your shoulders are constantly locked, if your throat feels very tight, any lingering, really specific and uh, noticeable physical somatic contraction is a great, it's like what they call the canary in the mind shaft. It'll mm-hmm. let you know that stress is present. As well, any intrusive thoughts that we can't get rid of, thoughts that are inappropriate to situations like worrying about work when you're at home or relaxing, (coughs) Uh, any change in sleep patterns or eating appetite. These are great signs to know that stress is mounting. Any Another sign is what's known as decompensation. That basically means you stop showering, stop shaving, stop, you know, having clean clothes, stuff like that. Another real telltale sign. One of the great uh, tools is to practice impermanence, which is noting that any situation is passing, it's fleeting, it won't last. So, Very often we can turn a stressor into a really traumatic uh, stressor by bringing the sense that, oh, I'm stuck, I'm trapped, this will last forever. For example, you take on a new job and it sucks. The mind can say, well, I've blown it, this is it, life's gone, fuck me, I can't believe I accepted this job, this is it, I'll be here forever suffering. And obviously what we want to do is bring awareness back to that it's passing, it's fleeting. Notice each day how it's different. Sharing, unburdening yourself by using other wise people in your life, in the Sangha. Any secret, anything we conceal, as the Buddha said, is one of the great causes of dukkha, suffering. This is why the Buddha said time and time again that the 
Sangha, or this Buddhist community, is one of the three refuges, the three security that is offered in spiritual practice. It's key to developing long-term ease. Having a daily meditation practice has been shown to desensitize the amygdala. They've shown that literally after eight weeks of meditating for 20 minutes a day, literally the activation of the amygdala, which causes stress and panic, starts to noticeably decline. We literally also begin to develop uh, gray matter in the hippocampus, and I know that sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually quite good. That's what prevents Alzheimer's disease, so you want that gray matter in your hippocampus. Again, acknowledging and talking about stresses is extremely important. Having an outlet where we can talk and get perspective on the importance of the events around us. Very often the mind can take a minor stressor. For example, feeling of not being able to pay a bill and the shame that that can bring on And if we don't talk about it, it can turn it into a major stressor. Feelings of shame and uniqueness are almost invariably cultivated in isolation. They're never cultivated when we take advantage of talking about what we're concealing or we don't like to talk about. I often say to people when I meet with them, the most important thing for us to talk about is the one thing you don't want to talk to me about. If you can just tell me that, probably all the good work will happen in that one conversation. So, in short, I think that it's very important to bear in mind these two tools. One is reducing the stress in our lives by unburdening, sharing, not adding stresses of perfectionism, not adding feelings of victimization or believing that our setbacks are particularly unique to us. The more we share and connect with other people, the less unique, the less victimized we tend to feel by life. It's very worthwhile to have a daily practice. It's extremely worthwhile to have the tools available in case you're ever in a situation where you feel an anxiety or panic attack developing. Remember, keep the sensations very low connect low in the body, take control of the breath, deep, long breaths, have a mantra set aside. I love you, keep going, Om Mani Padmiyam, may I be happy, anything that works for you. It's not the words themselves, it's just taking the mind away from the triggering thoughts that will reduce the panic. I thank you so much for listening. And now we're going to move to questions. If you do use this time to leave, if you can remember to contribute so we can pay the rent, I'd be very grateful. And I thank you for listening. And Josh, I want to say also, if anyone had this stuff,